I'd like to welcome listeners back to the extended podcast universe of Matt Goes to the Movies for a show we call Rob's Reviews. For those listeners who have had the opportunity to listen to the reviews I did with my oldest daughter Lillian for Minions, The Rise of Gru, and recently for Lyle Lyle Crocodile, thank you so much for checking those out. But this episode will be just a little bit different than those ones were. Uh, We are here tonight talking about a film from way back in 1996 called From Dusk Till Dawn. It's hard to believe now, but this marked George Clooney's major motion picture debut having only been known for his work on the TV medical drama ER previously. Directed by Robert Rodriguez and with a screenplay penned by Quentin Tarantino, From Dusk Till Dawn stars Clooney and Tarantino as bank robbers and all-around bad dudes Seth and Richie Gecko, with Harvey Keitel, Juliette Lewis, and Ernest Liu rounding out the primary cast as the Fuller family. With a budget of $19 million, the final box office numbers came in over $59 million, spawning two eventual straight-to-video sequels and a later Netflix series. Over on Rotten Tomatoes, you'll find a 62% critical score and a 76% audience score. For the EPU's contribution to the horror reviews we'll be finding all October long here at Matt Goes to the Movies, I've invited back to the show the Richie Gecko to my Seth Gecko, my younger brother, Eric. So Eric, welcome back to the Matt Goes to the Movies Extended podcast universe. Thank you. And we're going to talk about the fact that you made me Tarantino. (laughs) Well, I think it's only fair. So uh, Eric, we want to start with uh, a spoiler free segment. You know, this is a movie that is is definitely an all time classic that you and I have, have loved for a long time. Uh, and it's a movie that we were definitely both excited to do for our contribution to, um, you know, kind of the, the scary and spooky horror movies that uh, Matt likes to publish reviews on, uh, which, by the way, he's been doing uh, Halloween rundowns. He's ranked the whole series. He's um, done a review on the newest film that just hit theaters this month. Uh, so make sure you check those out if you are so inclined. Uh, you can also go back and check other reviews out on the show for previous Octobers. A lot of good contributions uh, all throughout there. So um, thinking about From Dust Till Dawn, uh, spoiler free. And I would say just as a warning, there might be a mild spoiler included in this just for anybody who's never seen this movie before and is is checking out this review. Mild spoiler, possibly uh, in this segment. Uh, but Eric, what would you t- tell people to entice them uh, to see this movie if they've never checked it out before? All right. So think about Roadhouse and throw in way worse uh like low life level characters and <laughs> and then have uh Robert Rodriguez make the movie and uh i mean i Tarantino wrote it Rodriguez directed it i don't there's not a ton else that you really need to know it's uh you know a, a like a southern border town um i think it's i think it is right across the the border into mexico but either way it has that same vibe uh, of a of a border town between Mexico and the U.S. and um, just a kind of a raunchy roadhouse place that's that's a little bit on the rowdy side as well and uh, antics ensue. Yeah, I think that's really a great way to put it. If uh, if you like the movie Roadhouse, if you like a lot of what Quentin Tarantino has done, if you like a lot of Robert Rodriguez and and his style, and and they've done a lot of stuff together, if you like their stuff, you're gonna enjoy this movie. If their work isn't really your jam, then this movie probably isn't for you. 
Um, yeah, it's not. You know, it's not of, a, like a. It's not something that a, a person who dis, dislikes like Tarantino and Rodriguez stuff. You you shouldn't even waste your time because I mean it fits in the mold with just about everything else. It's not the same as all their other movies. Not to say that it's just it's it is that type. Yeah, if you dislike Reservoir Dogs, you're likely not going to be into this. You maybe would be because Reservoir Dogs is pretty heavy at times. But if that's, you know, if you like Desperado, you'll like this movie, I, I think is is probably a great way to think about it. So um, if I had to tell somebody why they should check this out, because as, as we record this, I think it's maybe on Showtime streaming, but it's not readily accessible on a lot of the streaming platforms that a lot of people subscribe to. Um, so, you know, you're either buying it or renting it, uh, or, or borrowing it from the library or something. Um, but you know, really as, as I was watching this, you kind of forget how great every line that George Clooney's character, Seth Gecko has. I mean, he has the best lines of, of any character I can remember that isn't like a comedy. And there's, there's very funny moments in this movie, but it's not intended to be a comedy. Uh, you know, we do a segment on this show called Notable and Quotable, and I really had to force myself to pare it down because nearly every line Clooney says is, is gold. It's it's so good. Um, and again, we kind of said there'd be a mild spoiler. Uh, so this is kind of the moment where we'll get into that mild spoiler. This movie is very notable for a twist that happens with about 45 minutes left to go. And you never see it coming. Um, in fact, when you see those lists floating around the internet of like top, you know, 10 movies or best movies that switch genres partway in, um, this movie is always featured as one of those entries. Um, I can remember watching this movie. I was in either seventh or eighth grade. I didn't know anything about this movie. I'd never seen a trailer for it. Uh, my buddy Brandon asked me if I wanted to go along with him. His dad is in like the national guard or something like that when we were kids. So he had to go to, uh, the Capitol for stuff for like one weekend a, a month or something. I don't remember what it was, but he wanted me, asked me if I wanted to come hang out with him. So, you know, we sat around, we were playing magic cards and, and doing other nerdy dorky stuff that, that kids like, like I did, uh, at that age. And, and we went and saw this movie and we had no idea what was going on. We knew nothing about it. I'd never even seen a trailer for it. And to be able to sit in the theater and watch the twist happen that does happen was so wild. And you can't like recreate that ever again. Um, it, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, Overall, I would say there's really good action. There's good performances, really solid visual effects that that still hold up pretty well, considering this movie is, you know, it's almost 30 years old at this point. Um, great soundtrack, great dialogue. Um, I had a great time rewatching this movie the other night. So um, that would be what I would say to entice somebody to check this out if they haven't or if you haven't watched it in a while um, and you're kind of forgetting parts of it. I would tell you definitely go back and rewatch this. So that's going to conclude our spoiler free slash mild spoiler segment. We're going to go ahead and move into our next segment. Uh, least in likes. We're going to talk about kind of our favorite scene and we're going to talk about least favorite scene. Uh, but we're also going to get into just what about this movie works in general, or if there's things about this movie that don't particularly work in general. So uh, Eric, I'm going to go ahead and let you go first. Uh, do you have a favorite scene from this movie that you can nail down? Uh, and if so, what is it? I think like for me, my favorite scene is going to be like not right as uh, the, the defecation hits the ventilation, but like 
a few beats after that, like after the initial shock and response is, I think it, it starts to get serious for the uh, characters. It's very serious for them, but it's, it's almost borderline campy for the audience. And it's, it's, it's a really weird balance. It's like one of those, uh, like a wine that has two flavors that don't typically coexist, but they work really, really well together. Like it just, mm, it, okay. that, that, like that sort of weird, like tension that's in conflict with itself. That worked for me. I like that a lot. Cause it, it made, like, it makes you pay attention and, and take the, the moment seriously without feeling like you're actually, you know, going to get scared by like a cheap jump scare. You know, like it's not, it's not a horror movie in that aspect. Um, so I, I did like that a lot, um, and I, I guess yeah, that's the practical effects, which I, I want to touch on a little bit later when we get to some other stuff. But um, like you mentioned, the the practical effects, the the visual stuff, the makeup, the costumes—that was all just incredible. The the scene design, I mean, the bar is is fantastic. I would love yeah. to actually be there. Apparently, that place does exist, by the way. I see they've used it for a couple of things. I think that actually burned down at one point. They had to like rebuild it. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a set, I think. Um, but it's, yeah. So what, for listeners who haven't seen this movie, Eric's describing. So the, this movie, I mentioned there's a twist. It really starts off as this crime film focusing on not necessarily even the heist or the bank robbery itself. It focuses on Seth and Richie Gecko uh, played by uh, Clooney and Tarantino They've already done the bank heist and they're on the run and their plan is they need to get to El Rey, which is kind of almost like a, you know, like a, like a pirate safe haven, you know, think about Nassau at the, in the golden age of piracy. It's kind of, you know, this lawless town where they can, Tortuga they can exist in and, the, uh, pirate, yeah, it's really, pirates films. Yeah. It's really a lot like that. Yeah. Or think about like Madripoor in the Marvel universe, you know, it's just this lawless town and uh, that's their goal is to get there. And it, or uh, you know, Moss Eisley on Tatooine, it's really exactly. similar because, like, you you do like when you first go in, like, there's guys just beating the snot out of each other. There's you know scantily clad people dancing all over each other. There's people drinking copious amounts and loud music, and it's pretty. Awesome. Yeah, but do you? I mean, do you like the ta- the uh, Cantina band and the uh, the iconic uh, oboe music better, or do you like uh, you know Tito and Tarantula's uh, kind of like Tex-Mex sort of rock? Well, in terms of actual like musical awesomeness, then yes, uh, the Tito and Tarantula's stuff is so good. Um, but the yeah, the the Moss Eisley Cantina like song itself that's forever going to be one of my most favorite things yeah tito and tarantula if you uh if you didn't know any better you might assume it's kind of like a uh a hooting the blowfish cover band but they all do it in like a tex-mex style instead um at least that's what i'm going to tell my kids they are um but yeah these you know we've seen these kind of places in fiction and it's it's really pretty cool and a lot of fun um so that's, you know, the, they get, they get to this uh, bar where they're going to wait it out. And then all of a sudden they realize, you know, after a couple of mishaps and some fights break out, um, that the bar is staffed completely by vampires and the vampires proceed to attack everybody. And, uh, that's part of why they, um, they only cater to bikers and truckers as you find out is, is that, um, you know, they kind of like rob them of their gear and use that to sustain themselves. 
um, but they won't miss, you know, they won't be missed as easily. They're more likely to be loners or, or people that, you know, can disappear uh, and not be noticed right away. So that's, that's why it's for bikers and truckers only. And it's, it's really a very cool twist. You don't see it coming at all. And then the final yeah, they don't, 45 minutes of the movie, they don't foreshadow anything. Like there, nope, there's no, not even a tiny bit, it's not even a subtle hint where like somebody gets like offended by like a wooden cross, like. You know, where somebody who's just a little bit too over the top and ridiculous is watching and be like, oh, I bet you they're a vampire, you know, like trying yep. to say, like, I gotcha before you got me. There's no hint, no clue. Sherlock Holmes himself would not have been able to figure it out. <laughs> it's a literal needle drag across the vinyl, right? Like it just com- like it's a complete full stop. All right, we're a vampire uh-huh. movie now. Uh and it's it's it works. And you know, you kind of mentioned cool. this movie at times is a little bit campy. And it can be in that in that second piece of the movie. It can be a little campy at times, but even with that, I I really don't care because I just I no, love it so much. You know, it's meant to be fun. Like it's meant to be enjoyable uh, to watch. It's not it's not meant for you to sit down and and you know try to do some critical thinking and okay, so what were Quentin and Robert trying to? you know convey here what message were they sending <laughs> no. with the guy playing the guitar that's made out of a corpse can you imagine being the guitar tech for that band like you know you gotta like do all the other normal stuff and then all of a sudden you also have to tune up like a, a carcass with a head yeah. hanging off the back of it and have that one ready to go too because that just appears out of nowhere the guy's just playing it yeah like that's that was you know clearly available but it yeah. wasn't out. It wasn't out, you know, like they, that's, they weren't like displaying it. Yeah. That's some roadie backstage. Who's got that thing ready for whenever they call for uh-huh. it. <laughs> Get the cadaver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This thing shreds. Um, so my favorite scene is uh, they're getting ready to cross the border and Richie and Seth are hiding in the bathroom. Um, they've got Kate kind of hostage and there's a lot of tension because Scott, um, who is is the son of the adopted son of Jacob Fuller, played by Harvey Keitel, uh, Kate, played by Juliet Lewis. You know she's she's being held hostage in the back uh, or in the bathroom, and uh, it's very very tense. So Cheech Marin's character comes up. He actually plays three different characters in this movie. He does and uh, he's Great. he's asking Jacob, you know, how many are in there, and he says just me and my son. And then um, the whole time this is going on, uh, Richie and Seth are fighting as brothers often do. And the whole thing about him, like Richie having hurt feelings about being called a nut, because he clearly is a nut, but he's sensitive about being a nut. This whole scene is so funny and it's tense and the dialogue is great and it works so, so well. I laugh throughout the scene. Um, It reminded me so much of the same exact concept in um, Boondock Saints when Connor and Murphy are are like trying to fist fight in an air duct right above a room full of Russian mafia (laughs) guys, you know? Oh, it's so good because that's That's exactly what could happen. Uh Um, And even little things that work well. So when, uh, you know, when Kate kind of gets uh, the border patrol out of there, you know, um, Seth is holding Richie up because he had to knock him out because he just wouldn't shut his mouth. And he kind of gives her this look. Clooney does this a couple times in this movie. It's he he's such a talented actor, and it's not even necessarily when he delivers a line. His nonverbal acting yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. And the look he gives her, like it's it it conveys, hey kid, good move. That was pretty slick. Like, uh-huh. I respect you. 
that what I just said was conveyed with like an eyebrow shrug by Clooney. That's how good he is. Yeah. And, and I don't, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm a Clooney connoisseur by any stretch. I mean, I've seen a crap load of movies, but like, I don't know that he's ever had a role like this. Not since, not but like, like I said, this was how, his major motion picture be? debut. Yeah, they, they like picked him first... off of the show ER. <laughs> Think about that, like right, a medical was, soap opera. Yeah, he was he was on that show as eye candy to begin with. I'm sure you know, like not to dismiss his acting chops, but like that you know that show wasn't full of uh, award winners. You know, it was, yeah. it was you, you had to have a, a pretty cut jaw and look good with five o'clock shadow, and hey, you're a doctor. Yeah, like this was long before he ever did Ocean's Eleven or anything like that. I mean, he was he was not, you know, like a major star the way he is now at that time. It's it's uh, you know, you got to go back and remember there was a time he was not like a household name no. and a bankable star. And here he is with a, you know, full length tribal tattoo and, uh, you know, just did this huge bank heist and, you know, shot some other people. And, you know, he's, he's playing like a real scumbag. Yeah. So uh, and it's funny because sometimes, you know, actors get pigeonholed, you know, you play one scumbag, you know, think about Michael Madsen. Would you ever see Michael Madsen get cast? You know, another Tarantino uh, uh, guy. Would you ever see him get cast as like a good guy or like a virtuous character? No, no. He's, he's always going to be a scumbag. At best, he's going to be a dirty cop. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, like where he's not like he has like a real guy job, but like he abuses yeah. the, the hell out of it. Like oh, that sure. would be his that would be his highest ranking morality type of yeah. thing he plays in the gray and, and nothing nothing lighter than that it's definitely gray at its lightest um yeah but you know that's it's kind of a risk to to play a character like this um you know and, and not sort of get pigeonholed later on so i want to talk about other things that we love about this movie and other things that work and i want to talk about the opening scene so we already mentioned that there's a major plot twist in this but when we start from the beginning what a great misdirection in the, at the beginning of this movie so we start with the uh, texas ranger walking into uh benny's world of liquor and it feels very slow and kind of boring with just this small town bsing between a cop and a liquor store clerk and then he goes to the bathroom and Seth just shows up with his gun. And that just lets you know, holy Huge cow, gun. there's a lot more. Yes, it's a giant. It's like a cannon. Um, yeah. He just lets you know there's a lot more going on. And we have some, I mentioned that that Seth's character has some of the greatest lines of any character in any movie. He immediately starts with, I will turn this place into the wild bunch, which that's kind of a deep <laughs> cut. If you're If you're not a film person, you might not understand why that's hysterical. But the, the wild bunch, as a film notable for being among the first to really show graphic gun violence and blood. Um, it's not, it's, it's thought of at times people will tell you it's the first film to actually show blood on camera, but I found other films that predate it. Uh, but it's, it's notable for being the first to really show graphic violence and blood. Um, so that was, you know, that, that's kind of like Tarantino nodding to the audience. Like, Hey, if you're a film dork, like I am, you'll find this really funny. Um, so I, I, I love that. And then later on, he says that you can change the name of this place to Benny's world of blood. And it's just the way he delivers it is so good. Um, right after that, we get just, of course, everything goes to hell because Richie is, is a, is a sociopath, um, ends up shooting the cop. Everything goes to hell. We get a phenomenal fire burn stunt with the microwave popcorn going off around the burning clerk's body, which is just to let you know that this There's movie some good firework, by the way, like guy phenomenal. On fire, he was shooting full body. Yeah. While he was fully immolated. Like that was uh, 
that's pretty rad. Yeah, I mean, that is among the more complex and dangerous fireburn stunts you'll see. I mean, the only ones I can think of that rank like full body immolation like that, that are that are as complicated, you know, some of like it, before the Geneva Convention banned flamethrowers, like any wars set pre that and you get a dude just completely engulfed like those ones are pretty hairy, but this one is is up there. Um, so they're walking away from the liquor store and the whole time the, it's just exploding all around them. And they're just arguing the entire time with each other, uh, Seth and Richie are, and it's just hysterical because Clooney's asking if he understands what the word low profile means. (laughs) And, and it's great. Um, and if you watch the opening of this movie and you're not into it right away, this is not for you because it's really a microcosm of what you're, you're in store for. Well, yeah, because Tarantino was telling him, like, you know, like he was he was giving him a sign, he was giving him a signal, you know, like he's trying to argue this point is, is yeah. why he spazzed out, you know, and instead of the fact that he's a psychopath, like, you know, because he doesn't actually believe that and want anybody else to think it either. And it's that's the constant, you know, bickering. And I want to highlight something else um, that really works about this movie. The overall dynamic between Richie and Seth is so good. Um, Seth clearly knows his brother is a predator and unstable. He, he knows that, but it's his brother and there's real brotherly love between them. Even when they're arguing, I would say even, especially when they are arguing, Seth doesn't have any misconceptions about what his brother is or who his brother is, but he's kind of made his peace with that to some extent. Like he he doesn't you know he he's that's a bad dude too but he's got limits to like how bad he is richie is got far more bad things that he does um that cross lines that seth won't but that still doesn't change the fact that seth loves his brother and is going to try to protect his brother even if he has to protect him from himself sometimes like when he knocks him out in the bathroom of the winnebago because he is a nut and Seth has to keep him from, you know, getting them all caught and then all ending up in a bad spot. So overall, I just think that dynamic is, is fantastic. I, I spent some time going back and forth. Uh, it, it, you know, do you think that Clooney's character ever entertained uh, like the George killing Lenny situation in, of Mice and Men? Like, did you ever think that that was something that he thought was in, inevitable? I can't figure out just from watching it, like there were times when I think like, yeah, he's definitely thought about blasting him like at the end of this, like just cause he's going to bring him down. But then like, he does have those moments where he's like, no way he's, that's his brother. Like, and he's clearly, you know, invested in that part of that relationship. Like he would never, ever. You know, that is a fascinating thought experiment for these characters in this film. Um, I would say when, at the point we meet these characters in this movie, I don't think that's ever crossed his mind because Seth was, was on his way to prison and Richie busts him out before the events of this movie. So he knows he owes him for that. And he's, this is likely not the first time that Seth has had to clean up after Richie at all. Uh, And I'm, and I want to get, we're going to talk about the bank teller in a, in a little bit, but um, you can tell that that's not the first time. Like there's, he's been, you know, these are bad guys. They probably had a, you know, bad upbringing. Dad probably wasn't around or dad was also a scumbag and they just kind of fell into the family business. You know, you can likely see those things. You can kind of develop your own head cannon there very easily about these guys. Um, I want to play with the idea you just brought up for a second, because 
as we meet these characters, I don't think he's thought about like that, you know, uh, uh, Lenny and Curly kind of moment where he might have to just put him down for his own good. Because, you know, we see him later on tell um, when when Richie gets turned into a vampire, you know, he's going to stop them from from killing his brother because it's still his brother. But I could see a scenario where let's say they get to the twister and it's just a regular bar. There's no vampires. They wait out their time. They go to El Rey. They send the Fullers on their way and they just live in El Rey um, or wherever it is. They end up from there. I could see they're getting a point where if Richie continues to cause problem after problem after problem and, and sooner or later it's going to get back to Seth and they just can't keep running anymore. I could see that being a situation where he tells Richie to go look at the flowers. Like I could I, see that. Yeah. I, so I think it's, uh, he would 0% ever plan it ahead of time, but he would yeah. 100% do it when, you know, when it got to the point where he had to. Yeah, where it just there was no way to keep cleaning up after him. There's just there's not a broom yeah. big enough for all of those messes. And yeah, one of those rabid messes, dog forever. No, one of those messes being the dead bank teller. Um, it's a hard scene to watch. It's an uncomfortable scene to watch. Clooney absolutely nails this scene, both verbally and non-verbally. I talked earlier about just how he conveys so much um, without speaking. And his reactions in this scene, his facial reactions, just the way he moves his head, the way he turns his neck. There's just little things that, man, it's, he's got the great line. That woman wouldn't have said shit if she had a mouth full of it. It's, it's a great, it's a classic line. It's a great line. Um, I think overall he he nails that scene and the frustration he has with his brother. But ultimately he's not going to, he's not going to put him down even though he probably should. Um, I thought that scene was fantastic overall. Um, so they, they meet the Fuller family. They take them hostage because they've got a Winnebago and that's going to help get them out of a bad situation and across the border. We get this scene that is, I also think is really effective where uh, Seth is in the front with Jacob and he's semi interrogating him. And what's really effective, this is really clever writing on Quentin's part you get a lot of background on Jacob and his family without it ever feeling expositional. It doesn't feel like we're just getting a dump. It's, it's a natural conversation and it feels natural for the two of them to have the conversation the way they're having it. So I just, I think that's another really good scene. Yeah, that was good. Too bad. He, so we move, he can write it, but can't act it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, some other things that I think work really well about this. We, we eventually get to the twister and uh, you know, they're inside the bar. They finally get in. They have a couple of uh, uh, adventures on their, on their way to get into the bar and uh, they're trying to kick them out initially. And he says, I'm going to count to three. And Seth responds, no, I'm going to count to three. And then uh, um, is, is it, um, I'm trying to remember which character it is. It's not Cheech Marin's character. But anyways, he says, I'm going to count to three. No, I'm going to count to three. One, two. And he responds as soon as he says one, he responds with two. That scene as a whole is so well-written, well-performed, well-shot, and well-edited. I just love it. I just love it. It builds the tension. And it it just, I think it shows you how close Seth is to breaking at this point because of all the stress and pressure he's been under to get them there to this point. And even though he's won, and, and Jacob even has the whole bit with him. Are you that big of a loser that you can't tell when you've won? And he's still angry about yeah. the guy putting his hands on him. Like he just can't calm down um, to that point. So um, 
shortly after that, we get another scene that I really like. And, um, you know, Seth's pouring the whiskey around and, you know, trying to make everybody drink and, and Jacob's declining to drink. Um, but eventually he says, Jacob, I want to have a drink with you. And he toasts him and he says to your family and Jacob responds back to yours. It's a little bit of Stockholm syndrome for sure. But I think it really does show that the relationship between the Fullers and the Geckos has changed a little bit and it's not adversarial anymore. They, they kind of recognize like, okay, we're, we're all going to get what we want out of this and we'll be able to go on with our lives in theory before everything changes, of course. But that scene to me, I just find to be really effective overall. I just, I just something about it. I like, well, and I would say, you know, I would pause with another question at any point. So they, they do play with the, um, you know, lapsed, uh, was he a, was he a pastor or was he just heavily he involved pa- in? No, he was, he was a pastor. He, okay, he was, so like, he was the leader of a congregation. Yeah. So like he hasn't walked away from the idea of the church. He's just walked away from like the institution of the church. And, but like having been, you know, a, a person of faith and not just, you know, a regular old person but he was he was a minister you know um do you think at any point he thought that he was gonna instill some kind of goodness or or convert either of the gecko brothers like do you you know was there any point that he felt compelled to because i mean i know some of some of those folks feel like they have to do that um you know they have to like witness to them I, i you know i just i think that his priorities first and foremost most were as a father to his kids to protect them that was it so he was going to do whatever to keep the peace and to keep up their end of the bargain and also to to stay useful because if they don't get to stay in that bar who knows what's going to happen so he had to sort of play the part and and you know explain that he's he's the trucker because he has an rv and you know um and then also to be cordial at the the table, you know, during the toast. Yeah. So great, great question. You're making me think tonight. Um, I don't get the impression that Jacob felt the need to convert anybody. I think, I, I think in his mind, he's already put his notice in, you know, with, with the church, not that he's completely given up on his he's, faith. He's not he's, on the clock. He's got enough. Yeah, he's got enough questions about his faith where he knows that he doesn't have any business leading a congregation uh, spiritually. You know, he he recognizes that he's got his own stuff to work out in terms of where what his relationship with God is like. And, and that's a really compelling, interesting story um, that we see. We see it in other film. We see it in, in TV and things like that. And, and frankly, people have experienced it in their own lives when when terrible tragedy happens. Um you know, it's, it's something he has to work out. I, I think he's already clocked out of that, that world and isn't prepared enough to jump back in. We're converting or saving the souls of these two, you know, bad dudes really enters his frame of mind so much as keeping his children safe. You know, they're all he's got left. His wife is gone. He's just got his children. And, um, I think that's really his priority. Um, you know, and I think in some ways getting kidnapped by some pretty bad guys, um, you know, probably even just reinforces a lot of um, his questions. Where his head was at already. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, just like, look, if, if bad things can happen, you know, like this, then, then how is there, you know, a kind and just and loving God? And that's a whole other piece of theology that people way smarter than me can, can kind of get into deeper. Um, but I think it probably just reinforces that part, but yeah, uh, yeah, good, good thought experiment. Um, cool. want to talk about just a couple other scenes that work really, really well. Um, when they gear up for the final battle. So they, you know, they kind of get a little bit of a break in the action. The, there's very few survivors of that, of the bar patrons um, that make it, you know, we've, we've got Jacob who's bitten at this point. Um, we've got Seth, uh, we've got Kate and we've got Scott and that's, that's all that's left. You know, that's our survivors. And they get to the the back room and we get this gearing up montage, which uh, I absolutely love that scene. <laughs> it's, the it's the best. Holy cow. All right. So um, you've never, like, if you, if you were born at any point during the 80s and grew up in the 90s and watched things on VHS, anything at all like this was fantasized about by every warm-blooded boy that I knew, like Batman or Commando or uh, Three Ninjas or Home Alone, anything where you're like, scrounging and improvising and just collecting weapons and making traps gearing up putting on the belt and the grenades and the gun and those scenes are always so sweet and you are going to guarantee duplicate it the next time you break out the nerf gun oh yeah and you've got the bandolier and the nerf gun and you probably have like a rambo headband tied around your your forehead you know like weird like buccaneer plastic sword that's bent in the middle for some reason yeah, you had that too. Yeah, they, they all they go, were always bent. It's still yeah. Oh yeah, I mean the uh, and you always get a sweet guitar riff at some point during these montages. There's a lot of quick cuts and uh, they're they're always just a lot of fun. I personally would pay a large sum of money for somebody to make a Left 4 Dead style game that takes place like right about from this scene through the end. Like, give me that. Like, just let me be Seth running around with a stake shoved into a jackhammer. That's about as impractical of a zombie yeah. of, of a vampire killing weapon as you can imagine. But that doesn't degrade its overall awesomeness factor. Like that's pretty awesome, right? It's like sweet. impractical like and Duke awesome level stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I want to shout out the makeup effects on this. Oh, um, you know, really I'm good gonna... stuff. I guarantee you I'm going to have a nightmare about vampire Danny Trejo because <laughs> he was. Wait, did they do vampire? Did they do makeup effects on Danny Trejo to make him a vampire? Or did they just kind of shoot him? No, he was, he was a vampire and he was, <laughs> no, oh, I, I, know, I'm just saying. Oh, I see what you did there. Ha ha. Except that he, I don't think he was as ugly in this movie. I mean, <laughs> we're talking degrees of ugliness here and I don't know, but like, I think, uh, you know, before a couple more decades of hard living war on him, he actually, uh, he looked a little bit spry and, yeah. and you know, youthful. But um, he was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His his vampire makeup was probably the best of all of them, I think. Um, so quick shout out, Greg Nicotero, you are awesome. Um, so Greg Nicotero, if you don't know, if you don't recognize that name or don't know where you recognize that name from, uh, some people who caught my look at the flowers reference earlier will know that he is, uh, the makeup effects, uh, director and also directed multiple, multiple episodes of the show, the walking dead, which is very notable for its disaster makeup and, uh, just creature creations and just, 
pretty cool practical effects overall. So I, I really feel like, you know, considering this movie takes place in 96, it's still really held up for you me. You know what um, I thought of immediately when uh, Cheech dies as his third character? Um, it seemed a whole lot like uh, Indiana Jones level uh, practical effects when um, they open up the arc and that yeah. Nazi's face like melts off. It, you know, it's it's pretty sweet. Um, but I thought about that and it made me start thinking about how awesome like industrial light and magic is and how many people probably went to there after doing a film like this. You know, they just uh, found careers because they did an awesome job. Yeah. Uh, so before we move on, Eric, is there any other scenes that you want to call out or any other aspects of this movie that really work for you that make it an all time classic? Um, I, I wanted to point out how awesome of a thing it was when they had the sunlight come in and hit the disco ball. Mm. Um, that's basically like a vampire hand grenade. So that's, (laughs) that was pretty sweet. Like somebody clearly thought of that, you know what I mean? Um, and Tarantino, I have to say he's, he's a bum actor in this. He actually is not as bad in his, his own films. He's not great, but he's not, he's not this bad. Um, and he actually said like the film, you know, we've been hyping up the effects and, and makeup and stuff. Um, they won a ton of awards and were nominated for several, but they won like a million Saturn awards. Um, and then Tarantino got a Razzie nomination for worst supporting actor and a stinker award for the same thing. Um, hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, I didn't, I didn't even like mean to look that up. It just was on the screen as I was doing some research and I was like, ah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, <laughs> and there's just to touch more on the, the campiness there, there's a guy with a crotch gun and I think it's awesome. <laughs> there is a crotch gun. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's actually impractical. If you look at how it's made, it doesn't um, it, it's obviously intended to just be phallic and goofy and not taken seriously, but having the chambers on the side like that of a revolver, like I'm not, I'm not really sure I understand how that's intended to work. Like it's just supposed to be a goofy problem. I'm not against it though. Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, all right. So we're going to move into uh, least favorite scenes and just anything about this movie that maybe doesn't really work for us. So I'm going to go ahead and lead with my least favorite scene. Um, it's kind of two parts uh, after the initial melee in, in, you know, when the vampire twist happens, um, there's there's a scene where they're standing around talking about what do we know about vampires? What hurts them? Um, and then a little bit later, it's followed by uh, the character Frost, which you actually never hear his name mentioned on screen. So it's Fred Williamson's character talking about being in Vietnam. And he, and he, you know, it's this really dragged out scene that goes nowhere where he's talking about murdering all these people with his bayonet. Um, it's really pretty terrible, actually, the, the whole thing. Just it's very slow. It, the pacing really drags down when when we just got this great vampire battle um frost lights a cigar no less than like eight times throughout this movie it's it's pretty dumb really um and it doesn't have much in the way of memorable moments i mean yeah it's kind of covering for um we you you know you mentioned the the phallic revolver earlier it uh, belongs to a character who's only known as sex machine that's his name in this movie it's literally his name um so you know, it gives him time to to turn from human into vampire because he's bitten at, at, and, at and one somebody part of the like, They they like call him that, like in the middle of something, like you know when crazy stuff is happening, and you know they're like shouting "sex machine" out, like they're they're shouting Kevin. Yeah, <laughs> like, like just really, his name. 
and I, nobody, I would, like, there was never a formal introduction like hi i'm sex machine you know, right like they just know that's not, his name yeah they somehow know everybody knows I would love to think that when this character was born, that literally sex machine is on his birth certificate. Well, like, can you imagine yeah. the social security office issuing a, a social security card for sex machine Jones or whatever his last name is? Yeah. Um, you probably wouldn't be able to do that nowadays, but uh, I, yeah, that'd, that'd be I don't know with all the people naming their kids Khaleesi and, and stuff like that. I suppose you can't really shame anybody. Um, so that would be my least favorite scene. Eric, do you have a least favorite scene from, uh, the movie from *Dust Till Dawn*. I really just about anything that Tarantino had a, a line in that wasn't directly with George Clooney, because like as uh, their dialogue together was was carried by by Clooney, but it was like less bad than when Tarantino was trying to like hold an actual conversation with another person. It, it just it was hard for it was hard to watch because. First of all, his head is like a like an old light bulb, you know how like it starts off so small and then it just gets enormous to the top. So like, I already have a problem with like looking at how big his head is. Extremely talented man. I just could not. It, every time he talked, it pulled me out of it um, for this movie. And I, I normally let bad acting go a lot further before it, it truly bothers my watching experience. But for whatever reason, I don't. Maybe I was just in a crappy mood that day. But. Uh, yeah, that that's really like the worst for me. I and I also didn't care for it. I know that it's sort of uh, in conflict with, with what we've already talked about. But the 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 big switch up. The reason I didn't like going from like one genre to another is because they really spend a good deal of time setting up in the beginning. That first of all, this is a heist movie. Okay, so it starts off as a heist movie. And we're like going to be checking out this super action-packed, you know, getaway with with lots of you know cool scenes. And there is plenty of action, and there's plenty of cool scenes. But it's not really a getaway. It's a hey, we're here, and we're just celebrating and hanging out, waiting for somebody to come pick us up. And then it switches again, like oh, and by the way, we're all vampires, which I I like the movie, but I didn't like the sort of way that they flirted with what I thought it was going to be. Cause that's like a, mm. it's right in my wheelhouse. I love that. So like, you know, it's, it's so cool to think that you're going to get what you're really looking for. And then all of a sudden they're like, net, they yoink that rug right out from under you and they do something completely different, but I do end up, you know, thoroughly enjoying the, the whole thing. It's just the first time you see it, it does something. Yeah. Um, you know, I, to just piggyback off that for a second, you're right. With the scenes where uh, Quentin is with Clooney, <clears throat> those typically work really well. The scenes he's got with Kate, you know, they're creepy. They they just skeeve me out. But you know, he's he gets kind of quiet, and he's I think he's overdoing some of the creepiness a little bit. Um, they're they're tough to watch. They're they're tough to watch for a lot of reasons. And 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 I think initially it wasn't until you really talked about it that it, it was really able to formulate my thoughts on it. I, I initially just kind of had a a negative reaction to it because it's just creepy and it just weirds me out, makes my skin crawl. But his delivery of it, I think you're right. There's there's some some work there that could have been done. Um, talking about Richie a little bit, there's the scene where he actually turns into a vampire. So they give him the full on vampire makeup, but then there's this weird shot of him like with the fangs, but not in full vamp look. 
and it's maybe supposed to just be from Seth's point of view or his perspective, but then it switches right back to him in full vamp makeup again. And it's really distracting. And from the very first time I saw this movie and every time I see this movie again, it's really distracting to me and I don't understand the decisions behind it. And I, I don't know, Eric, do you know the scene I'm talking about? I know the scene. I don't, I don't know that I actually picked up on the continuity error. If that's what you're saying with it very well. It, feel, it, it looks like a, a continuity strange, error. Strange direction to go with your photography. It, I don't know. Yeah. Just kind of strange creative choices there. Um, you know, Harvey Keitel, I typically like him in most things, and I typically like him throughout this movie, but he does chew some scenery at times, particularly towards the end of this movie. I kind of wish they would have pulled him back a little bit or chopped that up, you know, a little bit better. Um, but uh, other than that, I, you know, I fairly, I, you know, I pretty much like him throughout this. You know, we get another kind of trope in this film that I hate. I hate tropes. Listeners of Matt Goes to the Movies know how much I hate tropes and I hate lazy yep. screenwriting. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Be creative. Show me something that I haven't already seen 500 times. Don't be just lazy and go down the same path everybody else has. And one of the tropes we get in zombie and vampire flicks is a character who gets bitten or infected in some way and hides their infection. And the character of Sex Machine gets bit and he makes the decision that he's going to hide it from the other survivors. I don't understand that. Like it, it's a narrative piece, but it doesn't really help the character in any way. So I'm very, I like, I'm really confused why he does that. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't help him in any way. Um, so that it's just a, kind of feels it's a, unnecessary. It's the human psychological thing. It's I a, guess it just doesn't really work for me though. It's for him. I'm saying it's the, it's the other of the two ideas. The, the first idea, the most obvious idea is, you don't want them to kill you. <laughs> okay. Like it, you, you just don't want to die sooner than you would. So nobody wants to stare down the, you know, their own death and to, to make that known would be inviting it. Uh, Cause you don't know how people are going to react to it unless you've already had long conversations about it with the group that you trust. Either way, it's still hard. Option two, I think uh, is more applicable here because okay, you take a guy whose name is X machine. <laughs> who is is rocking a uh, crotch gun and it's the absolute ego thing it's the oh the other people turn to vampires because they're soft i can fight it it won't be me it won't happen to me yeah um because i'm you know i'm sex machine <laughs> there, there is that um on that same kind of tip this is another problem that we see in a lot of uh zombie and vampire fiction there's some really uneven timing with how long it takes someone to turn. Um, you know, oh, yeah. Frost turns That's almost immediately. Never, um, you can never predict that ever. Cause yeah. it's, it's based said, on your value as a character. Uh, yeah. And I guess part of this, like I can probably explain it a little bit, I guess if I want, but you know, I just want consistency. Like I kind of want, like, I want it to make sense, but you know, you don't really have to look too much further than the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Some people, it was fatal. Other people, they were completely asymptomatic with everything running in between. So I suppose the, if you really want to explain it away, you can say the virus or whatever it is affects everybody a little bit differently, but that doesn't change the fact that I still want, like I want consistent. Want yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I can explain it, but that doesn't change the fact that I dislike it. And this is just another example of why the film 28 days later is so oh, brilliant. Geez. 
it's so good because (laughs) you get infected and you turn almost immediately it is almost Uh instantaneous and you turn into a rage zombie and you are fast and you are you know the the from the moment you get that drop of blood in your eyes you choose violence like it's just you're on go mode and everybody in the, the film universe knows it which means that it's universal Yep, and there's nothing to hide. And uh, by the way, if you enjoy the film 28 Days Later, uh, last October, Matt and I broke down both the original film and the sequel 28 Weeks Later. So uh, go check those movies out because they're uh, awesome. And then they're uh, really so reviews. good. They're really so, so, so good. It's like ridiculously good, like unnaturally uh, good. Uh, I'm going to have to um, watch them again. <laughs> I know. I think I am too. Um, so that w- those are uh, my list of things that uh, my least favorite scene. And then uh, scenes that are just things that about this movie that don't particularly work. Eric, do you have anything else about this film you'd like to mention that doesn't particularly work for you? Yep, that's it. All right. So we're going to move into another segment. Um, this film, like I mentioned, is notable for a lot of things, but it comes up frequently on a list of uh, on lists of, of movies that change genres uh, rapidly uh, right in the middle of the film. So it, you know, this it's, it's about two thirds of the movie is an action crime story. It finishes as a vampire gore fest. So uh, Eric, what genre switches would you like to see the most? I'm going to read you off a list of, of possible <laughs> movies that start one way and finish oh. a completely other way. I have not shared any of these with him in advance to the listeners, <laughs> I, by the way. He, he has no knowledge of these. <laughs> so worry. you're going to rate these on a scale of one to 10 with how much you like the idea. Just as fast as you can rate it, knee jerk reaction, little to no thought. Uh, I want you so to like give me one. One sucks. Ten's great. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So one is The Last Jedi and 10 is Empire Strikes Back. Okay. Just so you have Fair an understanding enough. of the scale. So my first one for you. Sports underdog story that becomes a heist movie. Uh, I feel like that's actually been done. So maybe, maybe four. Oh, okay. Um, a war movie that becomes a Hallmark style Christmas movie. <laughs> um, I mean, they, the, the real Hallmark movies pretty much make all these dudes out to be like war heroes that you just don't see all the cool parts. <laughs> this would improve. I think viewership. I'm I'm going to give that one a six, six. All right. Uh, a sci-fi space exploration movie that becomes a pirate story. Uh, it's a 10. Yeah, I think that's a 10 for sure. A rom-com that becomes a slasher flick. I want all of them to be like that. Yes, 10. <laughs> that's awesome. But here's the thing is just like from Dust Till Dawn, I don't want the twist in the trailer. I want all these girls to drag their husbands and boyfriends to the movie thinking they're going to get stuck with another Katherine Heigl rom-com and all of a sudden halfway yeah. into it, like there's just a dude in a Freddy mask and just ripping Wonder people that. to shreds. One of the earlier Deadpool trailers was. Oh, yes, because they advertise it as a romantic like yeah, film. They, they very, this Valentine's Day, yeah. They, and it really wasn't like foot and mouth either. Like they were, I wouldn't say they were legitimately trying to trick everybody. It was still a no, joke. Like It was a know, joke. Like, that's the foot and mouth of an idiot. Tongue in cheek is what I meant. That's what you get when drinking all day. Uh, but it is hilarious. I love that because uh, you have to think at least one chick saw that and was like, oh, I'll take my boyfriend there for Valentine's Day. And, you know, it turned out completely different than what she thought. But that's not the same as like starting a movie off with, right. uh, you know, the girl crying over a tub of ice cream and then, you know, her, the, the neighbor from apartment 4C is, you know, out of sugar and shows up. And then, you know, the next thing you know, they're killing all of their 
neighbors in the building yeah. with uh you know kitchen knives that, that would be cool i mean quick quick sidebar about deadpool the way that i know my wife is totally my ride or die is uh we actually went to see that in theaters on valentine's day that's what we did for valentine's day one year on and purpose. it was her and it was her idea oh that's great yeah that's how i know she's my ride or die yeah no yeah um all right so i got a couple more of these for you okay. how about a, a western that becomes a dystopian apocalypse movie like fallout new vegas i'm playing it right now um yeah sign me up love it that's like an eight eight all right um how about an American Pie style sex comedy that becomes a spy thriller? <laughs> oh man, that would be really good. Um, you know, <laughs> that would be that's probably going to be the funniest one on the whole list. If I <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, a sword and sandals epic that becomes a zombie flick. <laughs> uh, that okay, maybe that's not going to be the funniest. One. <laughs> That'd be right up there. Yeah, I'll probably give that another nine then. A nine? All right. And uh, a stoner comedy that becomes a disaster movie. You know, think like, uh, dude, where's my car? But then it becomes Twister. The, the movie This is the End is all the people from like, Seth Rogen and, you know, uh, what's, what's... Oh, what's yeah, you know what? You're right. I think so. I think they kind of made that movie already. It is. Yeah, and it's hilarious. But um, I'd, so I'd love to see another one. But that one, like... I guess it kind of does do it like a genre switch. It actually is like a legit one because they really just started off as like a stoner comedy and then then the rapture happens and uh, then it's like apocalypse uh, type stuff. Hmm. It's great. We got to talk about that one at some point. <laughs> so what would you give it? One to ten. Oh, crap. Uh, that's that's a nine and a half. I'm, I haven't half. given any uh, decimal points yet. All right, so yeah, sounds like uh, sounds like I got a couple of good ones. So you really oh, like yeah. the sci-fi exploration movie that becomes a pirate story and a rom-com into a slasher fl- flick. Those are your, those are your tens. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, um, that was actually that was a lot of fun to come up with those. Uh, we're going to move into another segment that we do commonly on uh, the extended podcast universe, not on the shows when I have my daughter Lillian hosting with me. This is just when Eric's with me. Um, a, a segment we call the F Bombathon. Uh, so Eric. Did you get a chance to look up how many times uh, the F-bomb gets dropped in From Dust Till Dawn? I did. So I scoured and scoured. And, um, of course, this was after I was done watching. So I couldn't even – I wasn't going to bring myself, you know, another hour and 48 minutes worth of watching just to tally up F-bombs. So um, what I was able to find was it was no less than 105 uses. So at that – uh, hour and 48 it's uh, a rate of 0.97 f-bombs per minute so almost a full f-bomb per minute um which is that's putting it it's not middling territory but it's certainly not in the hall of fame do you think that's more or less than what you thought it would have been like if you just watched the movie and tried to guess how many it was is that more or less than you thought i it was? it's actually significantly less i thought it was going to go almost to a minute to be honest yeah, I would have thought two a minute. It was the right rate for this one. Uh, we're going to go into our next segment, body count. So uh, a lot of people get taken out in this movie. Uh, Eric, I'm going to give you an over under, and you can tell me if you think the body right. count is over or under. We're counting zombies too, or not zombies, vampires, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, one fifty. Over or under one fifty. Are we counting the bats too? I think they nah. the bats. Okay. All right. So. 150. Man. Was there like 150 people in that roadhouse? Might have been less than Oh, no, that. the fire marshal definitely would have shut him down. 
yeah, I just don't know. I I just don't know if it. I mean, it was pretty big inside, though. I'll say under. It was one hundred and thirty-four. Under was oh, wow. right. You would have uh, you would have collected on on that bet. So, um, we we mentioned earlier how much fun the the gearing up montage is, and uh, I, I want to ask you, Eric, if you were putting together your ideal vampire assault kit. What are some things that you would have as essential elements of it? And, uh, and, and not like, so I want to contain it to just the rules of how the vampires in this movie act, not like in true blood where they have like quicksilver speed and they can just like warp and, and mind control you and stuff like for the vampires in this universe, uh, what's your ideal kit? All right. So, I mean, assuming that it's got to be somewhat practical and also, I guess, sort of plausibly, you know, something that could exist. First of all, I have to take one directly from this. The Super Soaker full of holy water is brilliant. It's hard to improve um, on that, right? Like, how do you get I, I, better than that? It's, I mean, and again, it, it plays directly into the childhood nostalgia um, because that's, we we have all wielded this gun. So we're familiar with the uh, controls. Yeah. Um, and the water balloons, what, like that's just like that's so good. And then they get the yeah. half melted vampire face with the, it's just uh-huh, so well done. Another great opportunity for some super cool makeup and effects too. So you know you're going to definitely have some kind of way to, to get a, a large amount of holy water out in a very short amount of time. Um, I'm going to want a relatively easy to load crossbow to shoot wooden stakes because we're going for the heart, right? So that's. That's probably my my two like main ones, I guess. And then like if we're gonna be ridiculous, uh, you know, I, I would want some kind of flamethrower for the bats. Yeah. And um, I, I is there do, do we as a species can we create artificial sunlight? I mean, like a would a tanning bed be something? Yeah. So that was earth? kind of my thinking is if you can get a UV bulb and a flashlight, like I feel like that would be like almost it would basically turn you into like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of, of being able to take out vampires. Uh, well, I was thinking more along the lines of like a super awesome, like oblivion enchanted shield, like half, oh, yeah. the, lid, half the lid of a, of a tanning bed that you could portable, you know, battery attached to it and just ho- hold that up. And like, you could really charge through and murk some, some vampires. And yeah. And they yourself really well. They never decide if silver actually works on them or not. They have the whole line. Does anybody have any silver? Okay, then it's kind of you know what's the point. Um, right. But if you could if you could do like a buckler out of silver, that would be that would be pretty cool. That would be I useful. would maybe uh, do some type of uh, neck wrap of, of silver because that's really going to prevent them from biting yeah. down on your neck. Silver chainmail feels like that would be useful, right? Yeah, and then maybe some something mithril, just because I wanted to say mithril. Uh, yeah, it's a fun word. And it's it's a yeah. fun material to work with, so we're going to move heard... into a. Wait, you speak dwarvish? <laughs> no, we're gonna uh, we're gonna move into another segment we've we've done multiple times here on Rob's reviews, and we want to do a, a segment we call Villainy Index. So <laughs> when Eric and I are choosing movies, we want to add to our list of, of films we want to talk about. And ultimately uh, get Matt super jealous that we're talking about some of his all-time favorites, which this one definitely uh, (laughs) lands in that category again. Um, But the things that make all-time classics, all-time classics, uh, you got to have good bad guys. That's one of the the important things to make any movie 
worthwhile. Uh, you know, a hero is only as good as the villain that he measures himself or herself up against. So, uh, Eric, I want you to rate uh, the vampires as overall villains in this movie on a scale of one to ten. Uh, ten is clearly Darth Vader. That's the all-time villain of all times. I will accept no further questions on this subject. Uh, and one would be like the guy from Tomorrow Never Dies, where he's just like a newspaper guy who, who oh, wants to start yeah. wars to sell a lot of newspapers. Like that's weed. that's such a dumb lane. I I was gonna Who's go gonna with the um the the people who were like using the bulldozer on the uh, land. Ernest goes uh, to camp. Ernest goes to camp. Yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah, somehow I knew that. So uh, scale of one to ten, rank these rank these villains. Uh, so like collectively as like uh, as a whole, because I mean, yeah, there's not really like a head head vampire. You know what I mean? Like I just I kind of look at them collectively. Yeah, they do sort of seem like a little bit of a commune because I mean you've got everybody that is working there is clearly working towards the same end goal. So I mean they do have some it's sort of loose affiliation, you know, at least. Um. I don't know. I it's kind of devious, and I'll I'll say that they get a super cool bump um, from the end of the movie where it's like it looks like it's it's uh, some kind of Aztec temple that's like dug into the side of a hill. I that's love like, that at the end of it that they reveal that like there's some kind no, of like, like mythical curse or something ancient again, attached to it. I love not that. Even, not even any point at all in the film do they hint at this, suggest it whisper it yep you know imply it none of it okay so it Not really is like a, a a crazy reveal in the very final moments of the film that's what you see you know as they're as they're driving away so i think that that's super kick-ass and it gives it um it gives it cool points for having some kind of weird mythology behind it instead of just like you know regular old vampires who just want to eat people um they certainly have some style, uh, so you got to give them some some credit for that because they have great taste in uh, music and just overall, I guess, ideas of, of culture because it's it's a really sweet roadhouse. I mean, it's oh yeah, their time. design aesthetic's pretty cool, right? Like I, yeah. I would certainly hire their interior decorator to work for me, right? But like just from like the hours of eight a.m. to like six p.m. So right, um, <laughs> the. So I, I I think I'm going to maybe give him a seven. I'm going to go a little lower because uh, I'm going to give it a six out of 10. Um, you know, the what's kind of weird is like for purposes of the action scenes, they almost they even reference that their bodies get softer so that they can go through the table legs and stuff like that when they're being taken out. Um, so that seems like a kind of a little bit lame to me we don't really get much of a glimpse into their hierarchy. Like who's actually running this. Now I did mention that there's a second and a third film. Uh, I've not seen either of them. Eric, have you ever seen the, the, the second and third film? No. And there was a TV show that was canceled. Yeah. It's on Netflix. I think they made it like one season. Oh, maybe it is. What did I write? I guess. Yeah, three. They they were supposed to do four seasons, but they canceled after three. I think is what. Yeah. So that's maybe explored uh, somewhere else. I I haven't seen them. I looked up the sequel films um, in only as much just to see who was in them because I wanted to see if anybody. uh, I think Danny Trejo makes another appearance, doesn't he? Um, he might. I didn't write it down, but like, who were clearly like the main characters were a bunch of no names, which is not. I'm not saying that it's 
a bad movie. It just at the point that I was at, I had no interest in pursuing a watch of those to give you any type of info about them. So, well, I mean, for the purposes of this podcast, I have watched the Big Lebowski spinoff film that focuses just on Jesus, and it's terrible. And it was such an ungodly waste of my time that even if the second and third films are terrible, they still wouldn't be as terrible as that movie was. So don't ever watch that. I don't even remember the name of it, but I just remember it was terrible. And I actually paid money to rent that movie. And was, I kind uh, of feel bad about that. And it was awful. Jesus Rolls. Jesus Rolls. That's the name of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, what an awful movie that is. It's well, I watched terrible. The- the OG uh, Gone. For oh yeah, seconds. you did that too. Yeah, that was uh, which, that was actually not. It was. It too wasn't terrible. It wasn't awful. It was. It was better than the original Ocean's Eleven. Uh, you know, yeah. I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, overall, as far as the villainy index, you know, I think there's some things that are hinted at. Man, it would have been cool to see some of these ideas explored a little bit further. Um, but overall, you know, there's they're not too intimidating except when they get into large numbers because it's you know if you can literally make them uh shriek backwards just by taking a stick through a shotgun and making a vague shape of a cross and they're like oh no and they have to run away from it like that's a little bit lame in terms of your power set but uh right yeah so that's that's where i've got them um they they did have a corpse guitar player so like <laughs> they did have that, and I and on the on the subject of the uh, the shotgun scene, uh, when he sticks it through Danny Trejo's character and then proceeds to use his body to <laughs> pump and cycle the ammunition uh, through the that's shotgun. Super cool. That's actually really clever. Uh, like that's that's a cool practical effect too. Yeah, there um, was uh, there was a lot of really neat moments because it wasn't like too over the top where it was like a like Bayonetta where like you're rewarded for just doing outrageously ridiculous combos and stuff. But like, it wasn't not that either. You know, there was, there was a little, that's where like some of the camp creeps in, but it wasn't. um, But it's not too much. It's never quite too much. They did strike the right chord, even though it was like a a chord of dissonance, it was still the right chord. I would say this movie is never too much. It, it can see too much like down the road. Like it, it know it, it knows where too much is neighborhood is, mm-hmm. but it doesn't go there. too much farther, but it knows where it is. And you know, yeah. a few blocks ago. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's about it. So we're going to move on to our next segment called notable and quotable. And like I mentioned, <laughs> iconic classic movies, the kind that stick with you, the kind that make you want to stay up and record a podcast about them. There's a lot of things that make that movie stick with you. And one of the big ones is iconic classic lines. Um, so I've got a couple of them. I mentioned earlier that uh, George Clooney's character, Seth Gecko has some of the best writing for, for his character of anybody you can think of like the best one-liners outside of, you know, like an actual true comedy. Um, so I really had to pare some of these down. Otherwise I'd just be literally writing down his entire dialogue. Yeah. Uh, there's a moment where he, he uh, Seth tells the bank teller to plant herself and then follow, like, she makes some kind of, uh, she starts to talk and he says, I said, plant plants don't talk. <laughs> so he goes through the whole list of, of rules and, and it, these are very practiced. This is not the first time that Seth has given rules to a hostage. You can tell. Uh, and he says to her, if you make a noise, Mr. 44 makes a noise. If you run, I have six little friends who can all run faster than you can. <laughs> It's just, it's great writing. Um, so I, I particularly enjoy that. Um, quick, almost like a throwaway line. You know, they're they're in the uh, they're in the twister, and um, 
Seth can tell that some of the guys they beat up earlier are starting to look for them. And he goes, Richie, get back on the clock. And it's just, it's a, yep. it's a quick liner. I love it. Um, there's the moment where Selma Hayek's character, who's, by the way, the character's name is Santanico Pandemonium, which is a mouthful to say. Um, you know, she's she's going to try to take him out. She tells him, you know, you're going to lick the dog shit off my boot or whatever the line is. And she Just says, welcome. I told you to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to name you Spot. Like she has this whole bit. And she says, welcome to slavery. And he's reloading his revolver. And he says, no, thanks. I already had a wife. Like it's, I actually read somewhere that that line was not intended to be included, uh, but it was in a trailer or something like that. So Robert Rodriguez felt pressured to kind of include it in the final film, which is kind of a neat detail on that. Um, Later on, there's a a moment where um, they're trying to take out Richie because obviously he's turned and, uh, uh, Seth is trying to stop them because it's still his brother. He says to them, vampires won't have to suck your blood. They can lick it off the floor. <laughs> it's just such a great line. Yeah. Um, the final one that I've got, and then I'll see what you have, Eric, if you have anything different than me, he's trying, you know, Seth is trying to inspire Jacob um, to, you know, find his roots, go back to God and, and bless the water and things like that. And he asks him if he's a faithless preacher or a mean MFing servant of God. And it's such a great line. I mean, he's got the whole bit that goes up to, you know, he, you know, he, he talks about, he's never really been a religious person, but these are clearly, you know, these are, these are demons from hell. And if hell exists, there has to be a God. And uh, uh, it's really like, you know, if you ever study philosophy, one of the, the major like questions in, in philosophy is is the question of theology and, and you know, the proofs of, for the existence of God and things like that. They're they're really quite fascinating if, if you're so inclined. Um, this is actually a really clever one that could be used. If hell exists, there has to be a heaven. Um, I, I just kind of like that whole bit. But the, the final line is, is one of my favorites. So, uh, Eric, any other lines from uh, from Dust Till Dawn that stands out to you? No, I only really had the couple. Um that you had uh from Seth Mr. 44 is that's always going to be um something that's fun to do is to to just give your weapon a, a Mr. title and and then just say what it is and it gets you, it gets the point across very quickly there was something from the gas station uh early in the movie that I I thought was great it was it was dialogue between the two brothers, and I'm I'm struggling to remember now because I didn't write it down because I thought I was going to remember it. And here I am, you know, idiotically not remembering. But it, it it's it's the quick bits like that. Um, but the uh, Richie get back on the clock. That was one that I remembered clearly. It was like ah, that's you know that's a straighten up time to time to get it. You know that that's a trigger. And you can even see like to, they switch back into work mode. Like uh-huh. that's. That's one of the things like people don't realize, like the average person is not a criminal, doesn't really associate with criminals. Like that's, that's just not the the world they live in. Um, so a lot of people I think don't fully understand that when a thief is setting up a heist or is, is going to go knock over a store or something like that, like he's clocking in and he's going like, that's him going to work. Like whatever he decides he's going to wear to go do that. Like he's getting dressed for work the same way. Like when I wake up in the morning and get showered and shave and put on a suit, I'm getting dressed to go to work. Like these guys are too. And you can see that moment where they flip and they're back in, you know, Richie immediately just says back to him, how many, like he already knows like what that means. Um, and that it's, it's go time again. So yeah, it's, it's really uh it's a great little bit and it's, it's like one, one or two lines. And it's just a great bit. So, 
Um, we're going to move into another segment that we've had a lot of fun with here on uh, Rob's Reviews. Uh, I mentioned there's some things that you need for an iconic movie. Another one of those things that makes a movie truly stand out from all the hundreds of movies that people have seen is the music and the use of music. So uh, we call this segment Eric's EPU Extended Playlist. And uh, we've had a lot of fun with this in previous shows. Um, this, uh, you know, I feel like I say this to you all the time, Eric, when we do this segment, but man, you have really outdone yourself with this. <laughs> this would be my favorite uh, playlist that you've put together. So uh, tell listeners what they can find on the playlist. Uh, tell them what the name of it is and uh, maybe also tell them what you'd recommend. Um, what's the, what's the right way to enjoy this? Is it, is this a playlist you listen to while you're working out, while you're driving home from work, while you're chilling? Uh, so, so tell listeners about this playlist. So um, this is uh, called MGTTM uh, EPU is not goes to the movies extended podcast universe. Uh, it's, Again, a title taken directly from the film. So uh, I went with Bikers and Truckers Only, uh, as was the policy of that bar. And um, you can find this on Spotify. There's uh, going to be a link in the show notes, right? Um, yep, link in the show notes. So um, it, rather than you could just do the search function or you could just go straight from the, the page uh, of the show that you're listening on right now, whatever app you're using. And it'll be there. You can just click it and it'll take you right to it. This is actually, so like a, a ton of the music in this show, uh, in this movie rather, was awesome. Um, there was a lot of it that wasn't. And there was also, I mean, it was good for the, the movie, but it's not good for a playlist. Um, and then there were some that just don't exist uh, commercially. So um, I, I got, it, it's, it's I, I want to say it's strange, but it's really not all that strange that you and I got the same vibe from it because we frequently get the same vibe about a lot of stuff. Um, it was very much a uh, blues-influenced playlist um, for me because a lot of the songs that, that we heard were very bluesy or like Southern rock. There was definitely a lot of influences there. Again, like, you know, you recall it like a Tex-Mex style. It's, it's a, you know, it's like a border town kind of um rock and roll vibe to it but a lot of you know bluesy and even some folk elements to it um and that's where that's where these songs came from so um it was the blasters that 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 opening song um called dark night um is the one when they're just going to the bar and then uh, at the 55 minute mark, uh, if you know, in case anybody wanted to fast forward, is when Selma Hayek does her dance, and uh, that song's called "After Dark," and that's one of the ones by Tito and Tarantula. Um, they have some really good stuff. Um, there's another one on there, um, "Angry Cockroaches." That those three were directly from uh, the soundtrack, uh, and then we put a bunch of other stuff in here that's um, blues and, and southern rock uh, related. That's really fantastic um this would be really really good listen at work if you're able to have uh you know some music played low or if you're allowed to wear your uh headphones that that would work out great because uh, it's not it's not like fully sad blues it's it's really kind of like energetic uplifting blues for me at least um it's just really good it's also really good if you have a loud 
Thompson's in your car, you can crank it up while you're driving. Oh, yeah. This is a great driving home from work playlist. Just chill out, relax a little bit. This is a good, uh, you got some meat on the grill and you have a cigar in one hand and a glass of bourbon in the other. Like that's, this is a great playlist for that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, some, some fantastic stuff, Eric. You've got, um, uh, some Jimi Hendrix, Red House on there. Um, just, you know, that's the general vibe of it. Uh, Greta Van Fleet's Highway Tune, which I will never not listen to immediately, like when it comes on. Like, I, I can't imagine a time I would ever There's skip that actually, song. Like, every part of that song, too, is so great. So, like, it doesn't matter what yeah. part you hear, like, you're going to just stop and listen to it. And I've seen them live perform that song, too, which was just absolutely amazing. Um, so I, I highly recommend if you get a chance to see Greta, uh, go see them. That's uh, they're, they're a good band to see live because um, I think you're going to probably see some more fun stuff from them in the future, I hope. So, yeah, definitely uh, check that out. The playlist is a lot of fun. Um, it's one of those things like any of the playlists that Eric has put together for the shows we've or for the movies we've reviewed on uh, Rob's reviews here in the EPU. It's hard to listen. Like if you know the movie they're from or that it's based around, it's hard to listen to those playlists and not immediately want to go watch the movie. And even though I had just watched the movie and then, you know, you, you sent me the playlist to start listening to it. I I'd already just seen it like two days before. And I immediately wanted to go watch from dust till dawn again. Um, yeah. So it, uh, it, it definitely will do that for you. I wanted it to definitely does that point out. Um, Cause this is probably the one that you had the most um, like direct input on doing because you know, you sent me like three or four different ones, um, which helped me really craft uh, kind of the, the direction we were going uh, with it. But there's Stevie Ray Vaughan, um, Pride and Joy. It's probably one of the most famous blues songs ever. Um, yeah. There's some ZZ Top on there, which is uh, the, that's the, she's just killing me. That, that was directly from uh, the, the film as well. And, I didn't yeah, I mean, he's how... even got a bit at the end where he talks about suck my blood, and he actually uh-huh. uses the the name of Selma Hayek's character in there a couple times. I, I remember hearing that I'd never so, noticed it before. Well, I didn't know like ZZ Top was a little bit hard. Like that was that was kind of a like way more of a hard rock song than uh, you know like the the other parts of their catalog I'm familiar with, like yeah. you know, Sharp Dressed Man, Guinea Three Step. So um, the one I well, wanted to point out really was. Bad Things, uh, Jace Everett, which you might not know just by the title of the song or the artist, but um, that is 100% the theme to True Blood, and I freaking love it. And, uh, and it I goes just, great on this playlist, yeah. It does. Like, And the, uh, the main reason I put it on there was, you know, obviously because it's great, but because when else am I going to get a chance? It makes the most sense. It's, <laughs> For it's this. A, like yeah. a, you know, like a bluesy folk rock song that is uh, you know a theme to a vampire show and this was a, a playlist that fits there and it was a vampire movie at least half of it so yeah yeah that's where it's at that's why it's there and uh i don't know this I'm, I'm pretty proud of this one i like it a lot yeah i listen to a lot of your past uh playlists that you put together I put those on pretty regularly there's a couple of them i cycle through um when i'm not listening to other episodes here on matt goes to the movies or episodes of the basement binge which you the listener should also be doing primarily when you're listening to something but i know that there's times where uh you want to listen to music as opposed to just a conversation sometimes you know there's other stuff going on around you got to pay attention to and it's hard to do you know multitask so uh yeah definitely check out the playlist that eric's put together it's a it's a lot of work for him to do, but it's really a lot of fun. And it's just a great way to celebrate movies that, um, that you love without necessarily having to sit down and watch it. 
So we're going to move into some behind the scenes details. Just some interesting things about the movie that I was able to research a little bit. And uh, Selma Hayek has this scene uh, where she comes out as kind of like the lead feature dancer at the at the bar. And uh, she has a fear of snakes and actually worked with a therapist for two months to prepare for this role, um, which I thought was like a lot of dedication. You know, like she's draped with this this giant albino python. Uh, for somebody who was afraid of snakes, like that's that to me was pretty impressive that she was able to um, to make that work. Um, the uh, the vampires bleed green, um, and that was actually an intentional decision not to make them feel more supernatural, but to help it get past some sensors. Uh, for whatever reason, th- that made a difference with all the other gore in this movie. I don't know why, but and this is where like sometimes you know for you know most of the mgttm audiences in the united states but there is also an international audience and censorship rules are different in other other countries australia's yeah. censorship rules are crazy like and, and and like we don't really think of australia being that drastically different than than what we're used to here in the states but yeah they've got some wild censorship stuff particularly with video games but yeah it's it's just weird sometimes you got to do something to to sneak something past um so I mentioned Selma Hayek's character. Her actual character name is Satanico Pandemonium. Uh, and Quentin Tarantino got that name from a Mexican slasher kind of gore fest film that was in a video store he used to work in. So, um, you know, Quentin Tarantino like, among the biggest like a, nerds of all time for movies. Like a Mexican circus advertisement, you know, <laughs> yeah. or like that. I mean, it was... Almost like, uh, you know, I would if you told me like he was doing it to pay homage to uh, the, the women of the Bond movies, I would have been like, yeah, no, that, that sounds right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah that'd be a Quentin sort of thing. That is like, but that's like, that's totally like a Bond girl name, you know? It is kind of a Bond girl name. You're right. Yeah. Um, they only actually had six full vampire bodysuits. They just so because of budget considerations, they literally just used the same six uh, performers getting killed over and over and over again. Every scene you see like a vampire, it's one of those six or all six of them together with some stand-ins that they use in other places. Um, so you'd mentioned in the EPU segment that the, a lot of the music is from Tito and Tarantula. Um, that is, that's actually them as the house band. That is the real band playing it. Uh, and Robert Rodriguez, the director is actually, uh, one of the, the band members of, of the house band. So I just thought that was kind of a cool detail. Try so saying move in... Tito and Tarantula while looking at Tarantino's last name written down. I mean, you'll never be able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, one of our favorite segments on, uh, Rob's reviews is to look into, possible castings or what could have been different actors that were considered for roles for one reason or another, it was never offered or they were considered or turned down. I wasn't able to find much on this movie, but I did find that Seth wasn't always necessarily going to be George Clooney. So Eric, I'm going to run some, some actors by you and I want to see what your response is to them uh, as Seth and see if you could have seen them as that character or not. I'm going to, I want to get, the first, I just thought of that I totally would have watched um, do the exact same thing. And if he's not on the list, it's still okay because I want to know what you think. Gary Busey. Mm, not on the list. 1996 Gary Busey. Okay. Mm. He was still crazy, but he was like employable crazy. I think, uh, I think he could have done that. I think he could have done it really well. Yeah. I, I would uh, I would have seen that. Um, I could I could have seen that work for sure. 
Um, so he was not one of the ones considered, but right. uh, the list I've got ranges from absolutely to what the hell were they thinking? Uh, the first one seems kind of obvious. They considered Antonio Banderas for it. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. desperado tie-ins, you know, yeah. so like that, you know, that is like almost too obvious. Yeah. That seems almost a little too on the nose almost. Uh-huh. Um, here's one that made me scratch my head. Are you ready for this one? I hope brace yourself. Steve Buscemi. Maybe for Richie. No, no, Seth. Yeah, yeah. I know. Seth. No, no. Not a chance. No. Uh, this one is an actor we already mentioned, Michael Madsen. Yeah, that would have worked just fine. Could have worked. Could have worked. Uh-huh. Uh, Tim Roth. See, yes. Uh, he could have played both. Or I yeah. Say both, but either. Um, and he actually probably would have been a much more convincing, uh, without being weird about it, um, Richie than, than Tarantino yeah. was, but he could have pulled off Seth. John Travolta. <sighs> and I'm hate... thinking like face off John Travolta and I'm going, yeah, yeah that could have worked. That's, that's cause it's the same. It, I think it's the same year. Wasn't face off 96 also. Might have so been. Travolta actually declined interest in this film but wanted to do Pulp Fiction instead. Okay. So I, I hate that. I, I agree, but I, I think, yeah, I, I, I want to hate John Travolta more, but when you he's, about, he's had a bad go of it the last few years, he's been in the news for some not good stuff lately. Yeah. But like, I really, really liked him a lot in Pulp Fiction. And yeah. um, I also really liked him a lot in face off. I thought him in the cage were yeah. per- perfectly paired. Oh yeah, uh, they were good foils for each other's methods and and you know their their style and uh, so yeah, I think the I think he would have done fine. Yeah, uh, this one I don't know Christopher Walken. No, because it's his cadence. He can't he's almost be, too quirky. Yeah, like he can't be because because they made Seth it is clear, smooth. Yes, they made it clear right away from the very beginning and then reiterated multiple times throughout the film that he is. The rational one, and he is smooth, like you said. He is the the smooth criminal that uh, Michael Jackson was talking about, and you know he can think on his feet. He can blend, or he can be the alpha of the room. He's not afraid of anybody, and he knows he knows what he's doing. Like he's not a dummy. So, you know, I just don't think that that's something that Watkins could have done in this type of role. He can be a lead, but not this kind. This next one I'm going to give you is almost the exact, like you could say the exact same thing. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. He, he could have been, he could have been a good Richie. Yeah. I would have watched that. Uh, James Woods. I don't have a strong feeling on that. I would say Jimmy Conn before James Woods. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would have been um, good. Maybe a little too old. When this movie came out initially. I don't know. But, they, yeah. they have a way of making him look young, but I, I think that, uh, yeah, I guess depending on who you cast as his brother, because yeah. that's the other thing. Because, like, you know, there, there's a, some weird resemblance. You know, like Tarantino was obviously, like, you know, his mom was wasted the entire time she was pregnant with him. Like, that's why he looks <laughs> like that. But, yeah. you know, like, it's, and on no type of planet could he ever resemble George Clooney. But, like, I didn't also think, oh, there's no way they're brothers. Yeah. Um, the last one I've got is uh, Robert De Niro. I think that could have worked. Again, well, yeah, he's maybe he... a little too old to make that work yeah. at the point this comes out, but it's still like, yeah. Well, because he's 
he's we've seen him in the uh, you know the hustler criminal role before actually we've, you know we've almost only seen him in that role <laughs> so um but like i mean the, in goodfellas he's the unhinged psychopath that is barely in control at all times yeah just kills everybody that's ever associated with the job yeah. you know and yeah i, I don't I have a problem with that at all yep yeah so that was the only alternate castings that i was able to locate we're going to move into one of our final segments here so at Matt Goes to the Movies, we rate movies out of five. Uh, used to be five reels. Now it's five buckets of popcorn. And for Eric and I to choose a movie that we want to talk about here on Rob's Reviews, you know, five buckets, just it's, you know, it, we're only picking movies that we rank a five. So we came up with a different rating scale and we call it rewatchability rating. And I'm going to I'm going to read off uh, how the rating scale works. If this is your first time uh, listening to an episode of Rob's Reviews, I'm going to let you know. And for those of you, it's been a while. Uh, I'll remind you how it works. So a five is I would watch it start to finish every time locked in Four, I put it on and I play with my phone in between scenes. I love three. This is background noise while doing housework Two, a film. I enjoy, but don't really go out of my way to watch again. And one, it just doesn't hold up the way I remember it. So, Eric, I want you to go first. Uh, give me your rewatchability rating for From Dust Till Dawn. So, there's elements of this that I could say would put it around the two, like where I like it, but I'm not going to go out of my way to watch it. But I think that that's part of the reason why I would be almost a five where I'm like completely tuned in phone down because it is I, this would make maybe the fourth time I've seen it and there is like huge gaps of years between viewings for me and I think it's just as I get older and I have more appreciation for film elements and things um it allows me to, to look at movies a little bit differently and it's almost like it's the first time uh, that I've seen it. So that, that there's like a sort of an appreciation there for me. So I'm still going to, I guess I'll just average it and give it a three. Cause I, I, there's um, a lot of this movie. I just don't feel drawn to um, a lot of the scenes you said, you know, didn't work Frost's whole thing. Like that was, that's something I'm definitely getting up and taking a leak or refilling my bevy for that. You know, like don't care. It's, it's, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. So there's a lot of that, but there's also so much that you don't see anywhere else. There might be certain uh, themes and elements that, that other movies will sort of borrow. Uh, and it's not necessarily a direct borrow from this. It's just ideas, you know, concepts are big things. But like detail elements, you will not see another movie that has the same type of detail stuff that, that they had here. And again, the soundtrack's just so great. This is the, this is one of a kind. There's not another movie like it. And you are doing yourself yeah. a disservice to skip a chance when you have it. If you have a chance to watch it, you should watch it. Uh, great stuff. Um, so quick story. Um, <clears throat> I was doing my watch of this the other day and I, I ended up watching it on my laptop. Uh, partly because my kids have this thing where um, you put them to bed and they don't stay there. Like it's almost like their sheets are made out of rubber or something. They just bounce right out and come wandering around the house again. Teflon and, sheets. They need 70. 
Rats. Yeah, they need like 75 glasses of water and apparently have never peed once in their life because they have to get up and do oh, it yeah. 75 times. And then, you know, everybody has to give everybody else an extra hug to go to bed and say goodnight to the dog yeah. and everything else. Very, so, very affectionate time of day. Yeah, it's like you've never met anybody more loving in need of a hug, in, in need of a bathroom break or a glass of water than my kids at like 930, 945 at night. <laughs> um, that, this, is, this is just a true story. So I, I had it on my computer, on my, on my laptop, just kind of that way I could keep it angled away. Uh, so that if they did come out, they wouldn't see it. And a lot of times when I'm, you know, I, I'll put NBA games on um, just if like I'm not doing really much of anything else. I'll throw it on if I'm doing like multiple things all at the same time, because I, I love basketball in general. And I, you can kind of tune in and tune out really easily with NBA games. Um, you know, you, if you've got kind of a slow part of a movie, you'll just look up and oh, hey, look, there's a pretty cool dunk or something like that. Um, so I had on I think it was even a Golden State game. And I didn't watch a second of basketball. I literally didn't watch a second of it. I couldn't tell you what the final score was. Um, I found myself not looking up from my computer screen really even once. Um, and that was just on my most recent watch through. So, uh, you know, for me, is it a perfect movie? No, but I, you know, I forgot how much I love this movie. It's been a little bit of time since I've seen it. Um, so for me, I'm giving this a five on my rewatchability rating. There's not a lot of times that I look away from the screen. Those scenes that you mentioned. Yeah. That's, that's when you get up to refill your, whatever it is you're drinking at that point. But, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's a rewatchability rating of five. We're going to move into our, our final segment, Pantheon points. So thinking about classic movies that we just, we love, we adore, um, you know, when you when you put it into almost like your mental halls of fame, you know, what uh, what pantheons you sort of rank this in? And I'm going to I'm going to go first. Um, I've got a couple different pantheons I'll place this in. So this is this is likely in my top 25 favorite movies. And I oh. I feel like I'm like it's and this is just based on my most recent rewatch because I enjoyed it. I had so much fun watching it again. It's likely in my top 25 as, as I sit here today, but it's, I can comfortably say it's in my top 35. I can comfortably say top 35. Um, I would say that this movie is probably no lower than my second favorite movie where Clooney plays a thief. It, it might be tied for first might actually be first. I'm not sure. Um, it's in my top 10 movies that have a big twist. And I'm also going to say specifically Seth Gecko is top 10 all time best lines of any movie ever. Uh, my final pantheon is I, I feel like this has got to be my favorite vampire movie. Unless you can think of one, I'm an obvious one I'm missing. This is probably my favorite vampire. I movie. don't, I don't really know that many vampire movies to be honest. Well, I mean, you're really into the true, uh, into uh, the twilight saga. So I know you probably got all four of those higher than this. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> So I'm what sure uh, what pantheons do you have? <laughs> I would definitely put this in the top 10 in terms of movies with great soundtracks. Mm. It's going to be top 25 for me for movies that are wholly original in concept. Um, it's got to be top 10 special effects, like low budget special effects uh, in costume. 
Mm, okay, uh, good one. Scenery, I think that I, I just, I mean, I know we've talked about it a lot, and I still feel like we haven't talked about it enough. And then it's going to be, for my last Pantheon, it'll be my top all-time number one favorite movie with a crotch gun and corpse guitar. <laughs> nice. I think yeah. it, it's mine, too, by default, because I can't think of another time those are used. Well, if another one exists, this one's better. So, Yeah, yeah, you're probably right there. So uh, that's going to do it for us uh, for the movie From Dust Till Dawn. I uh, want to thank listeners for downloading the show, whatever you're doing right now, be it driving to work, going to school, walking the dog, mowing the grass. By the time you listen to this, maybe you're raking leaves or maybe even you know shoveling snow. Uh, whatever it is you find yourself doing uh, while you're listening to our words, it, uh, you know, if your side quest of the day is dishes and you're uh, able to get through that by uh, listening to our conversation, you know, we certainly appreciate you downloading this episode. Uh, there's other episodes of Rob's reviews all up and down uh, the Matt goes to the movies channel. You can find those pretty easily. A lot of great content overall. We already mentioned some of the great Halloween episodes, uh, both this year, last year and the year before. Um, lots of great stuff coming up for the channel. Please make sure you subscribe so you can stay on top of all of the episodes as they come out. They are available anywhere you get good podcasts, not like those dingy backwater places you can download podcasts from. No, only the good, high quality, top shelf podcasts you can find. Uh, uh, Matt goes to movies in all of those places. Uh, you can email the show as well if you'd like mgttmpodcast at gmail.com. Send any thoughts you have any uh, show suggestions or any rankings that you have of anything going on, uh, send us your MCU rankings, send us your Star Wars rankings, whatever you got. Uh, you can also check out the show on Facebook. There's a Facebook group. The show is also available on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Pretty much anywhere you are, you can find Matt Goes to the Movies. Uh, links to the playlist will be in the show notes, as well as the fantastic sponsors of the Matt Goes to the Movies program. Certainly, we appreciate you. Uh, links to those sponsors will be below as well. Uh, that'll do it for us. We're hoping to get another one cranked out, at least one or two of Rob's reviews by the end of the year. Uh, but once again, listeners, we can't say it enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this episode and supporting Matt Goes to the Movies. Until next time, that's all for now. <laughs>